Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Luke Wayne, elder here at the Mission Church, and it is a privilege to be opening the word with you this morning. If you guys could open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we'll be spending most of our time this morning. And as you turn there, I just want to reflect a minute on the weight of eternity. It's, it's strange. We live in a day and age when perhaps more than any other time in history, people think little to nothing about eternity. There's simply no focus on it. Most people go entire days of their lives without thinking about anything after the moment of their own death. And frankly, we think about death as little as possible, 2020 notwithstanding. Um, we, uh, we live in a day and age, and there's a variety of reasons we could go through that at least partially explain this. But we live in a day and age where people simply give no attention to the idea of eternity, of the hereafter, of anything beyond the, the, the fleeting moments of this mortal life. And when they do, even indirectly think on it, the emotion that is betrayed towards um, eternity is, is baffling to the biblically-minded Christian. Though, sadly, this can sneak into our own hearts at points, living in this modern world of distraction. Because we don't see a people, when they think about eternity, who are excited about what they think the age to come will be, nor do we see people fearful either of the unknown or of a known future judgment they know they deserve. What we see is ambivalence. They, when they think about it, they think about it in, in a way that they're, they don't care. If anything, they're, they're bored by the idea. One of the trademark, um, stereotypic, you know, hallmarks of our day is the idea of the bucket list. Anyone here seen people on social media put, listing their bucket list, places they want to go, things they want to see, foods they want to eat, stuff they want to do? What's the assumption behind that? The assumption behind that is that this life is filled with pleasures and you need to get to them before you die because after death, whatever's there pales in comparison, that you're, you'll be missing out if you don't get to that stuff now, because whatever may await you in the hereafter, it's going it's, it's gonna to lack things that you need to get to in this life. The focus of our culture is to neglect eternity, or if anything, let your vague thoughts of eternity motivate you to pursue pleasures here and now because you don't want to miss out on them. And so whatever eternity is, it's something that will lack, that will miss out on the things that you should prioritize enjoying now. This is such a far cry from anything that the scriptures would teach us to believe and anything that most of, of uh, human history, even outside of a biblical context, has, has thought 
It's such an alien environment when we look at the heart of Christian worship for the last 2,000 years. I take just a few examples of some of the hymns that we have popularly sung even in the last couple centuries. Many of you are familiar with Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, a verse we don't sing as often as we used to, perhaps indicative of this change, reads, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransomed soul away, send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. There's a yearning for what is to come. If I could just be there now, oh, glorious day. Or in Horatio Spafford's 1876 hymn, It is well with my soul. It reaches its climax, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I'm content to remain here, Lord, as long as you should tarry. But oh, haste the day. I yearn for the day to come. I'm content, I'm happy to live here and now however long you you wish, sovereign Lord. It is well with my soul either way. But Lord, all things equal, come now. Come now, Lord Jesus. There's this yearning for eternity. And even now, as I say such things, there might be something kind of coming up in your mind, there's a, there's a stereotype, a, an often assumed idea that this over-obsession on things to come leads to an unhealthy neglect of things here and now, a lack of gratitude, a lack of appreciation for what we have now, a lack of focus on the duties that we could have in this day and age. But the fact of the matter is, that's a quite false assumption. Scripture and history both bear out that the kind of focus on the hereafter that we see echoed in Christian worship over the last 2,000 years in preaching and in the very words of Scripture leads not to an underappreciation, but a proper appreciation for what we have here and now. Leads not to a neglect but an extreme diligence about things in this life. Flip through any book of church history or even secular history of, uh, of Western civilization. And what you'll find is that the, the Christians who have had the most positive, transformative impact on societies, laws, ethics, humanitarian efforts, any of these things have been singularly focused. One might even say obsessed with heaven, with eternity, with Christ's return, with the, promised, with the promises of what is to come. Martin Luther spawned the Protestant Reformation that's transformed the world 
because he couldn't take his mind off of judgment and eternity. It drove him to the scriptures to find peace with God because he could not get his mind off of things to come. And it changed the world here and now. The Puritans, who in their actions are quite well known for building cities and colonies, for, uh, for transforming cultures, shaping laws, calling out governments on their sins and calling them to repentance and righteousness. Yet, read their sermons, read their writings, and you will find that they cannot leave the subject of heaven. The Christians who have had the greatest impact now were Christians who were not living for now, whose minds weren't on now, at least not primarily, whose heart and focus were on the promises of their Lord that they could trust in, that they, could, that they yearned for, longed for, wanted, and wanted others to join them in. 20th century Presbyterian scholar J. Gresham Machen once wrote, I will present you a strange paradox, but an assured truth. The world's problems can never be solved by those who make this world the object of their desires. So today, I want to look a little closer at that eternal hope. What that looks like for us to, to live now in light of eternity. To hold that before our eyes as we gain focus. To live for Christ now, yearning for the very presence of Christ to come. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please open our eyes, our hearts through your spirit to your word today. I pray that everything that comes out of my mouth would be true to this passage, true to your word. And God, I pray that you would cultivate in us a heart for eternity, a love for your promises, a yearning for your presence in the way that you have promised it where we would be willing to hold on very loosely to our comforts, our pleasures, and our desires here and now because we trust in the glories of all that you have promised and that there can be nothing better to be in your very presence in the new and powerful way which you have said you will give to all who are in Christ, all who have repented of their sin and put their trust fully and completely in his finished work. God, draw us to yourselves through the future hope you've given us, that we would face even death itself with courage and boldness, knowing that death is a toothless enemy that you have defeated. God, we love you. We thank you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay. Wrong direction. There we go. Okay. So we're looking in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul opens with these powerful words. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God 
a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So here's where Paul begins the argument of this passage, and I think this is important for us to grasp. If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So what does Paul mean here? Well, on, to some extent, uh, for, for many of you, it's probably obvious that our earthly life, this mortal life that I'm living in this sin-cursed mortal body right now, is like life pitched in a tent. And if I lose this, it's fine, because this isn't my ultimate home. There's a heavenly home that is, as compared to a tent, a building, firm, secure, unshakable. And this analogy isn't unique to Paul. Um, Peter uses similar terminology about this mortal life. You don't see it immediately here in the ESV. We read in Peter, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off my body, uh, uh, that the putting off of my body uh, will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. But see, the word body, both times in this passage, is actually the Greek word for tent. And you, you don't have to take my word for it. You could see this even in, in reliable English translations like, say, the New King James Version. Uh, if, you, if you look, and some of, some of your Bibles may have a footnote indicating that it's literally tent here. So Peter said, I think it right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by way of reminder, and I know the putting off of this tent will be soon. So Peter used this same analogy, that right now he's pitched in a tent. The tent of this mortal life is something that we're going to leave behind, but we have something, an eternal building, a home, heavenly, secure. This is what Jesus was talking about. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I were going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus used this analogy of eternity as a secure home that he's making ready for us. Yet, Behind the analogy, where's the substance of the hope? That where I am, there you may be also. Just a few verses later, Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. This heavenly hope is eternal life in the very presence of our God to come to the Father, to be where Jesus is. This is what we yearn for. So often we get caught up in thinking about it as a place. And there will be a place, mind you. I'm not saying that there won't be a place. But in fact, other passages will picture this as Christ coming to us, as the Father dwelling with us. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. There's a new heavens and a new earth. 
As we're going to see later in this passage, we're not talking about a disembodied, ethereal, spiritual existence. We'll talk about that more later. This will be a very human, eternal life. But one made so much better, one living in the very presence of God. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, I'll let Paul get us there. First, I want to hang out on this analogy just a moment, just to picture what Paul's talking about here. What is this life? Now, when we think tent, our first instinct to go to is camping. Living in a tent is a recreational activity for us today. And so there are some ways in which that can be, our, our own tent experiences can be helpful to us in ways in which they can be misleading. And so it's important to grasp what's going on in Paul's vision of life in a tent. As that uh, when we think of living in a tent, we think some very universal things. About a tent is a temporary structure. No one goes camping intending to never come back. Intending to stay, you know what? I'm just going to stay in the tent. We enjoy getting away for a while living in a tent, but the tent is a means to get us to other places that we want to see. It's a temporary residence meant to provide limited shelter on a short-term basis. So whether it be an emergency situation, a military situation, traveling situation, recreational situation like what we do today, a tent is meant to be thrown up quickly and provide the minimal amount of protection and support to get you by during your temporary sojourn somewhere your temporary time staying somewhere. However, recreational camping can be misleading in that when we picture going camping, embedded in many of our mindset is the leave-no-trace mentality. That when we go camping out in a national park or somewhere, the idea is that when you leave, no one should be able to tell that you were ever there. This is not the ancient picture of what tent dwellers would have been like. Tent dwellers dug wells before they moved on that future travelers would be able to use. Tent dwellers, you know, helped pave roads and make maps and paths and all kinds of things. And so when we think of this, we need to realize that the fact that we're viewing this life as living in a tent does not mean we should have no impact here. It's just that we should not be living for our comfort, our pleasure, our security here. That it's okay if at any moment it's all taken away from us, even this very life itself, because we have something better promised, and therefore we can live with very different priorities here. When we think about our our own history, think about the, the pioneers who moved across this country starting east and going and settling new lands. As they traveled across, they built roads, they built bridges, they, they, again, they mapped things out, they set up trading posts. The goal of the wagon trains was in part to make things easier for the next people who came along to follow you to your destination. You're going somewhere and you want others to be able to get there after you. So you do sojourners, temporary residents in a place, build just like permanent residents do, but they build differently. They build with different motivations. They build for different purposes. 
And as we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, I very much think Paul has this in mind. We're to live with the priorities of tent dwellers, not modern leave-no-trace tent dwellers, but sojourners who are yearning to go to a home, but yearning to bring others there with us. We want others to take this trip and to reach that destination. In fact, it's very possible that Paul has a very particular type of tent-dwelling sojourner in mind here. Soldiers, people who are living with wartime priorities now, yearning to get back to their home. Now, why might I say that Paul might have this in mind? Well, if we look a little further down in the passage, later in the chapter, it's going to say, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So here we have this ambassadorial role. There is hostilities between God and people. And we are sent as God's messengers to make peace with an enemy. This is a wartime analogy here. That we have a people who have, who have done wrong and God is willing to forgive their trespasses and reconcile them to himself. And he sent out ambassadors to declare his offer of peace. This is, this is wartime imagery. And it doesn't stop there as we jump through the book of 2 Corinthians. We see phrases like in 2 Corinthians 6, 7, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the, in the right hand and for the left. So this is a, the end of a description Paul's making of his ministry and what he's doing and armed with the weapons of righteousness. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3 and 5, we have the famous passage, passage for though we walk in flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there's a lot of this warfare imagery, and we note here, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that the war in Paul's view in 2 Corinthians is not merely my war with my own sinful nature, with my own inclinations. This is an external war, not a physical war with flesh and blood, but a war against arguments, against lofty opinions, against minds that are set up against Christ. This is a war of gospel proclamation to a hostile and unbelieving people. With our ultimate goal as ambassadors to bring those people to lay down their arms and make peace with their true and righteous sovereign. To take every thought captive to obey Christ. And this isn't exclusive in Paul's writing to the, the Corinthian epistles. Uh, we similarly see in, uh, in 1 Timothy um, chapter 1, verse 18, 
Paul tells Timothy to wage the good warfare, or in 1 Timothy 6.12, to fight the good fight. Philippians 2.25 and Philemon 1, uh, 1 and 2, Paul calls, some, calls believers fellow soldiers. Ephesians 6, Romans 13, and 1 Thessalonians 5 all picture um, Christians as taking up armor for battle. And in 2 Timothy, um, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So not only do we see this same message, don't get entangled in civilian pursuits, your priorities ought to be different as a soldier than as a, a civilian of this, of this worldly life. We also see this very phrase to be pleasing to the one who enlisted you, a phrase we're going to see later in this very chapter, that we make it our aim to please Christ. And so there are a lot of, at very minimum, there are a lot of parallels between Paul's, uh, Paul's use of the sojourning, tent-dwelling analogy and his soldier analogy. If they're not the same analogy, which they very well could be, soldiers lived in tents while on the battlefield, this could be all one big picture of our life in this war, ultimately warriors waging peace, attempting to bring people to peace with God through the gospel. But if it's not at the very least, he's using multiple analogies to point to this very same reality, that as tent dwellers or as soldiers, our priorities are different in this life as we live to please the one who sent us, the one who enlisted us, the one who brought us into his cause. And that cause being this work as ambassadors for the gospel. And so, moving back to the beginning of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul continues, For in this tent we groan, longing for our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up with life. Again, notice that the hope here is not casting something off. It's not that we want to leave physical existence behind and live as disembodied souls in some ethereal realm. It's not that we groan about living in a tent right now because what we really want is to sleep outside in the snow. It's not that we just want to cast our dwelling off. What we want is everything good about this tent, but more firm, more secure. Similarly, Paul compares it to clothing. It's not that we want to cast off our clothes. We want to add to them. We want to be further clothed. A weary, weary traveler with worn-out garments doesn't despise his rags because they cover his naked body. He despises them because they don't cover it enough. In the last chapter of his book, Miracles, C.S. Lewis uses a related analogy. He says, quote, 
These small, imperishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies are given to schoolboys. We must learn to manage them, not that we, we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride bareback, confident, rejoicing. We don't desire death. We desire more life. We want to be human. That's what God made us to be. We're not discontent with the creature God decided to create us to be. We want to be human. We want bodies. But, but right now, under sin's curse, our bodies are not alive enough. We want what Christ promised, what only he can give us, life more abundantly. We want more life. And if, in the course of pursuing Christ, this body dies, that's okay. Because Christ can bring it to life again. In fact, alive as it's never been before. Christ has promised to raise our bodies up more alive than ever and never to die again. Thus, we need not fear death, suffering, or loss here and now. Instead, we trust Christ with reckless abandon, forsaking comfort, safety, security, health, even if it comes to it, life itself. To advance the kingdom, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Death can't defeat him, and therefore death can't keep me. If you are in Christ, death can't keep you. You need not fear it. There's better to come. We live not yearning for death, but yearning for Christ, and therefore giving no regard to death. If my tent is taken away, so what? I have something better. The most foolish thing I could do now is to cling to this fleeting, mortal, sin-cursed life for my fulfillment. It reminds me of a brief stint that I did um, with a, working for a wilderness therapy company down in uh, southern Utah. And uh, the director there told us about how in the winter, um, the, the teens who were part of the program would often, as their fire began dwindling down to mere embers, they would all just keep huddling closer and closer and closer to the embers, clinging to the, to the fleeting, fleeting, fleeting comfort of the warmth of that pile of ash and dying wood because none of them were willing to walk into the cold even for a few moments to pick up some wood. When all they had to do was throw a little more wood on and it would be blazing comfort beyond compare to what they're huddling closer and closer to dying in front of them. This life is embers and it's okay if they get straight up snuffed out. Because God will give me the warmth of a fire that never ends. That we, we have a hope that transcends this life. And therefore, we can step out into the cold. We can face the discomfort. We can do what our Lord demands. Without regard for what we might miss out in this life. Because what Christ promises is so much better. 
As Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Peter again writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This ought to stir us on to face come what may, anything in this life. As Paul will go on to say, going back to 2 Corinthians 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yet, uh, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. There's that language again. Now, does this contradict everything that Paul was just saying. Everything was, no, we want to be further clothed. We don't want to cast off the body. But now here he says, to be absent from the body and present from, absent the body and present with the Lord is better by far. And we prefer that to this. Does that mean he is talking about just leaving our bodies behind? No. No. Not permanently. When we die, we still await future resurrection. Paul has already talked to the Corinthians all about this in his first letter. We're going to look at that in a moment. So there's a recognition already in Paul's writings to this church that we die, but we're going to be raised again to live bodily with him, with these immortal perfected bodies. That's what Paul's talking about as the ultimate hope we're looking to. But when we die, we're not immediately there. That resurrection hasn't happened yet. Our bodies do go in the ground for a while. But Paul says, even being absent from the body, but present with the Lord, is better than being in our body and absent from the Lord. That the presence of the Lord, even stripped of my body, is far better than the absence of the Lord, even with all the material blessings of my earthly body. My ultimate hope is both. I will have the body and the Lord. That's the resurrection life to come. As Paul talked about back in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of, of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. This is the hope that Paul has already taught them about by the time we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the ultimate hope, but Paul wants to show us that 
to, be, to die and lose my tent, even now, before that resurrection day comes, I get something far better than anything this life can give me. My spirit goes on to be in the very presence of God awaiting resurrection, to be in the presence of my Lord Jesus. That is better by far than anything you could put on your bucket list. And we yearn, we yearn to be in the presence of our Lord. Yet, yet, what does Paul say? That, yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. How do we live in light of that hope? We live in light of that hope by making it our goal at all moments in every way to please the Lord we want to be with. We can have a disregard for death in our obedience. A missionary can go into a mission field where he's very sure that hostile forces will almost certainly kill him for the sake of the gospel. Missionaries in ages past poured in to places in Africa and Asia where they knew that tropical diseases for which there were no treatments were going to take their life after mere weeks there. But it was worth it if in those weeks I could get the gospel to these people. We can have a disregard for death. That doesn't mean we have a morbid desire for it. I yearn for the presence of Lord, not uh, for the presence of the Lord, not for death itself. And therefore, I can obey, even obey when obedience will cost me. But I don't seek death unnecessarily. But I do obey, regardless of whether it's going to keep me here, or whether it's going to strip this tent away. And I will, for a time, be absent the body, but still in the presence of my Lord which is better by far. I make it my aim to please him wherever that leads because ultimately I know he will lead me home. So Peter, again, writes on this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. When we are living as these sojourners, temporary residents in this life, what should that truth do to us? that this is not our home. Well, it should lead, leave us to wage war or, or to, uh, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which are waging war against us, to not give in to our sinful or sensual desires that would distract us, take us away from obedience to our Lord and King who has promised us far greater things than this world can give. You see, this is the way that the ancient church saw themselves. Sojourners. They were temporarily residing wherever God had them at that moment, and they sought to glorify him there. If you read the earliest letters outside the New Testament, those of pastors like Ignatius of Antioch or, or Polycarp of Smyrna, you'll find that they address the churches that they're writing to as the church of God sojourning in Ephesus the church of God temporarily residing in Philadelphia. 
This is the way that they would address their letters. This is how they viewed and understood themselves. In a, another ancient writing, it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it, but we know it's a very early Christian writing, um, perhaps one of the earliest works of Christian apologetics written to an unbeliever attempting to persuade him of the Christian faith. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus. And he writes, describing in chapter 5 of his work, For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. This teaching of theirs has not been discovered through the thought and reflection of ingenious people, nor do they promote any human doctrine, as some do. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, they f- and, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens, and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their homeland, and every homeland is, a for- is, is foreign. They marry like everyone else does and have children, but they do not slay their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. By the Jews, they are assaulted as foreigners, and by the Greeks, they are persecuted. Yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. This is the life Notice, they participated in the life of their communities, yet as foreigners. They made many rich. They were industrious, hardworking, productive people in this life. Yet they accepted poverty if persecution brought it. They, these were people living for eternity, not anchoring their hope and comfort and security in this life, in this world. Another second century Christian work known as the Apology of Aristides, written in a similar context, he gives a very similar list and begins it with, they have the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ himself graven on their hearts, and they observe them looking forward to the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come. So, I'm an American. I wear blue jeans and t-shirts 
I eat corn dogs and bacon burgers. You're not going to pick me out as a Christian by my everyday habits. I live in those superficial ways very much like my culture. But I hope, I hope that I am living obediently enough to my Lord that I would be picked out as a Christian for the deeper ways. My willingness to do whatever he commands, however it might shame me. To give up my possessions for his people, for his glory, for his kingdom. That people would wonder at some of the choices I make, not in the superficial way that so many religious communities might seek to set themselves apart by dressing different, eating different, having a, a, a sacred language of their worship together or different things like that but in the more fundamental ways that only the Spirit can bring, a genuine heart of obedience to Christ and therefore a love for his people and a heart for his presence, a yearning to be with him that makes me hold loosely any of the comforts of this life. So we read on, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Now it's tempting to spend a lot of time on the issue of the fear of the Lord because it is such a central, important, and underappreciated biblical concept in this day and age. It's something that we can't speak of enough. But for time's sake, I would urge you to go and listen to a previous sermon that I preached called Putting Fear in Its Place a few months back or one that Pastor Rich, Pastor Rich preached called There Is No Fear of God Before Their Eyes. In both of those, this topic of the fear of the Lord was dealt with very thoroughly. So we need not dwell on it um, too much here. But for our purposes today, it suffices to say that there is another aspect of having an eternal focus, a heavenly outlook on life that also drives our action here and now. There is what we yearn for. But there also ought to be what we fear. I am going to have to stand before Christ and give an account for how I have used these mere moments of this fleeting mortal life that he's given me. I'm going to have to give an account before Christ for what I have done with this life that he's given me with every breath that I've taken, every beat of my heart, every word that's come out of my mouth, every action that I've done. This, too, ought to drive us. Not that we fear that, this, that it's um, salvation by works, that if I don't do enough, Christ is going to cast me out. We'll look at that in a bit more later, how even in this context, it's clear that's not what Paul is talking about. But there should be a fear when I stand before God to judge how, stand before Christ to judge who I've used, how I've used my life, that I want 
I want him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I do not want to stand ashamed. You can read throughout the Gospels, Jesus very frequently talks about this. Good example would be the end of Matthew 24 on through the whole of 25, where Jesus gives various examples. Servants left in charge of a household by a master who leaves, who may come back at any unexpected time. And the good, pleasing servants are the ones who are feeding their, their other fellow servants, who are, who are taking care of the household, doing what Christ has left them to do. And when, when the master comes back, those servants are honored. He uses the example of the wedding feast and the people whose lamps are ready um, for the, the bridegroom may come at any time. The king who separates the sheep and the goats and praises those who have done to the least of these his brothers. There is, there's this picture of people who are living in anticipation of eternity, fearful of the might and wrath and power of their Lord. And that fear driving them to obedience, that they might stand commended, honored before their master when he comes. We ought to be driven by a recognition of the glorious, sovereign might of our king, who is king of all, whether we acknowledge him or not. He is our king. And we ought to live like it. And we ought to live ready to stand before him at any moment. Because we could walk out the door today and our lives could be over. Unexpected in a moment, we could find ourselves at the end of this life he's given us. And are we ready to stand before him? This should motivate us, should drive us, And drive us to what? What does Paul say? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What is, as Paul's talking about our life pitched in this tent, what is his mission here? What is it that we are here for? It's Again, as we read in the other verses also in this chapter, ambassadors calling people to be reconciled to God. We are on this journey to our heavenly home. And we are trying to bring others with us. And we are trying to leave this world behind in a way better suited for more to follow and reach that destination. I want how I've used my wealth, my hours, how I've raised my children, how I've opened my home. I want what I have done in this life to make it so that those after me have more of what they need to endure that journey, to make that trek, to find their way home. And again, this is not teaching works righteousness, that we earn this. This is not that our home and eternity is something that we have to live up to or else we don't get it. Indeed, the passage goes on to say things like, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him the Son. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we have the great exchange. He became my sin, took my sin on himself, took my punishment, my guilt, my shame on him. I could not get rid of it. He took it. I deserve punishment. He took that punishment. I deserve death. He died my death. But he did more than that. He gave me his righteousness. He clothed me in the undeserved righteousness of God. I stand before God justified not because anything that I have done, but because what Christ has done perfectly and completely for me. Also in this chapter, Paul says, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died and was raised for us. He has given us life. All who repent and have believed on him. He has already done that. We live for him as a result of that. He did it, and now he desires for us our response to that to then be to live for him, to live for him who gave us life, to even be willing to die for him. A brief and momentary fleeting death that ushers us into the very presence of our Lord because he died ultimately, fully, under the very wrath that we deserved. He took that for us. We live for him who died for us. We follow our Lord because he has already paid our price and given us life. As citizens of heaven, we seek to please our true king. We'll close with something Paul wrote elsewhere on this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many uh, uh, of whom I have often told you and will tell you now even again, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we need not fear death, suffering, loss, persecution, shame, isolation. We need not fear anything that this world might throw at us. Nor need we live for meager fleeting pleasures or comforts in this life because you have promised to give us so much more. God, may you keep eternity before our eyes. May we live in the fear of the Lord and the joyous hope of his presence. May we live for our king who has commissioned us. May we follow our master even unto death because death has been defeated at the cross. And it cannot hold us. We know we will live again forever with you, God. We love you. 
In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.